Exodus chapter 28, and we'll read the first 21 verses. <clears throat> the priestly garments. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his son Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour. Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of a skilled craftsman. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names of his, on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold, like a rope, and attach the chains to the settings. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of a skilled craftsman. Make it like, an eph like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square a span long and a span wide, and, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. In the first row there shall be a ruby, a topaz, and a beryl. In the second row a turquoise, a sapphire, and an emerald. In the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row a chrysolite, an onyx, and a jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. These are to be twelve st there are to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. Let's move over to Revelation. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 21, which is on page 878. We're going to start at verse 15 and we're going to go through to chapter 22, verse 6. Revelation chapter 21, starting at verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He, measure, he measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, 
and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need, they will not need the, lamp, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show these, his servants the things that must take, soon take place. Amen. Oh, that's better. I can see you now. <laughs> okay, well, let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we want to thank you so much for giving us your word. And now as we come, come to consider it, we pray uh, with gratitude to you for your word and your spirit that helps us to uh, understand what you're saying and helps us to think through its implications for, for our lives. And so we pray now that you would grant us a humility of spirit, that we would be people who don't sit over your word, but sit under it and submit to it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today we want to talk a little bit about reconciliation, because reconciliation has been a big topic in Australia over uh, recent years. And we all know what reconciliation is about. We need reconciliation when someone has damaged a relationship with someone else or a group of people have damaged a relationship with another group of people uh, and so on. But re reconciliation happens when the damaged, the damaged relationship is followed by sorrow, repentance and forgiveness. And it's great, to, it's great when that happens, isn't it? It's great to see it happening. People who were once at enmity with one another being reconciled, being brought back into right relationship. 
And sometimes it takes one person to, uh, to serve as a representative, to represent those who have done wrong, a representative who will seek forgiveness and seek the hand of friendship uh, from those who have been aggrieved. And such a person, well, it can't be anybody. It, it must be someone who is recognised by both sides as being the right person for the job. Because they're not just a representative, they are a mediator, they are a middleman, they are a go-between who can connect the two sides. And it's this concept of the mediator which is vitally important uh, in the Bible. In fact, the biblical notion of the mediator begins in the very part of the Bible that we are looking at today, which is Exodus chapter 28 through to Exodus chapter 30. Now, if you care to open up at Exodus chapter 28, you might have noticed that it is a great passage uh, if you're someone who's into fabrics and into uh, colours and into jewellery and into accessories. But if you're a person like me, uh, it's all a bit of a mystery. It's a bit of a challenge. As I said earlier, someone said you could demonstrate this, Scott, if you dressed like the high priest is supposed to dress. And that was never likely to happen. It's a bit of a challenge because here in this passage, God gives Moses the instructions for the clothes that the, uh, the priest is to wear, the design, the fabrics, the colours, the, the accessories. And yet, as we think more deeply about Exodus chapters 28 to 30, what we will find is that through these passages that we are drawn into the very heart of what it means to be someone who is in right relationship with God, someone who has been reconciled to our Creator. It is as important as that. But first of all, before we dive into it, let's just take a moment to, uh, to think about the context and to remember what was happening historically. Uh, at this point in Exodus, it's now less than one year, it's still less than one year since God had miraculously rescued uh, the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. We know that it's less than one year because, get this, the day that the tabernacle was consecrated was exactly one year after the departure from, uh, from Egypt. So it was the first day of the first month of the second year. So it's less than a year. And in Exodus chapter 12, we're told that there were 600,000 men amongst the Israelites. So 600,000 men, then add to that the women, then add to that the children. You've got quite a crowd, quite a mass of humanity, of, uh, of, uh, of rescued, uh, emancipated slaves uh, in the desert 
And now they are all gathered around the base of Mount Sinai, where God has been meeting with Moses, where God has given to Moses the Ten Commandments, where God has given to Moses the, the Book of the Covenant, where God, as we saw last week, has given Moses the design for the tabernacle. And now, in chapters 28 to 30, God gives to Moses the instructions for the establishment of a priesthood. Now, um, at one level, what we can see here is that what's happening is that a new society is emerging. A new society with, with order and structure uh, and distinctiveness is being created. And that's what sociologists would tell us is happening here, and truthfully so. But is actually far more profound than that. Because what is happening here is, the, is that man is being reconciled to God. Now, last week we explored the design of the tabernacle. And we saw that in the book of Hebrews that the tabernacle is described as being the earthly representation of the throne room of God. Remember that? It's the earthly representation of the throne of God because the tabernacle is a tent and it's made of royal materials of blue and scarlet and purple fabrics with, with gold. It's rich, it's lavish, it's, it's regal. And in it, in the tabernacle, was the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God, where God would meet with man. Just like on Mount Sinai. Just like, when you think about it, it's just like the Garden of Eden. Remember Eden? Man and God in relationship with one another. Man and God freely connecting, freely relating, freely. God had created man to rule over the creation under his authority. Adam was created as the ruler of Eden, but the vice-regal ruler, ruling under the authority of God himself. But when Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God, what happened to them? They were banished out of Eden, weren't they? And we saw last week that the, uh, the cherubim were placed at the east, at the, the entrance to Eden, with the, the, the flashing swords and uh, they were barring the way back to the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve, having rebelled against God, are banished from Eden and are unable to re-enter, unable to re-enter Eden and to reach out and to grasp hold of the tree of life. Now we know how true this is in terms of a picture of the world and of us. Because when we think about our humanness, we know that um, there is no comparison, that we are above all other creatures. 
We know that man is designed in order to rule the world. We do. We are the rulers of the world. But we also know that we rule very badly. And the reason for that is because we live outside of Eden. That is, we live outside of a relationship with God, our creator. And that's the story of the Garden of Eden. But we've seen early on uh, when we studied Genesis that from the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when God promised to Abraham that uh, he promised descendants, he promised a land and he promised a blessing, that from then on the unfolding story of the Bible is about man being reconciled back to God. It's about the return to Eden. And so here in Exodus, the tabernacle is like Eden because it represents heaven. Uh, And it is because it is there that God can be met. God can be met in the most holy place. But reconciliation is necessary in order for God to be met. And what is necessary for reconciliation is a mediator. Someone who can represent fallen humanity to God who is holy and someone who can represent the holy God to fallen humanity. In the Bible, such a person is called a priest. Now, um, some churches tend to call their leaders priests, don't they? Uh, and which, which is actually very unhelpful and it's, it's very, very misleading. Um, the reason they do that, by the way, uh, if you're interested in language and how it works, is that the word priest actually derives, the English word priest actually derives from an old high German word, uh, the word prester, uh, which in in turn derives from a Greek word presbyter. And the word presbyter, can anyone tell us what the word presbyter means? It means elder. There you go. So priest actually means elder. And so it's used to describe the leaders of the church. But it's a most unhelpful thing to do because uh, to most people, the word priest means something more akin to a mediator between God and man. And indeed, in some churches, that is actually what they mean, sadly so. But it's it's this mediator... Uh, concept, which is how the word priest is used in the Bible. Now, look at what God said to Moses in chapter 28, verse 1, if you've got that open. Chapter 28, verse 1. He says, Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Now, Aaron and his two eldest sons were amongst that group that had gone up to Mount Sinai and we're told that they saw God 
and they ate. Uh, here, Aaron and the, his four sons are now to be made priests. That is, Israel's priesthood is being established here. Uh, we often refer to Israel's priesthood as the Levitical priesthood, and that is because Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. And uh, you may recall that uh, when they entered into the land that the tribe of Levi were not allocated uh, a portion of the land because they were to serve as priests. But here the priesthood is being established. And the rest of chapter 28 is all about their garments. It's all about the clothes that they are to wear. Now, um, rather than going into close detail about all of these clothes, let me, uh, let me just make a few big picture kind of points. First of all, whilst the clothes are to be made for each of the priests, Aaron, uh, in verse 2, seems to be special. And here we see the concept of the high priest. Uh, in verse 2, the purpose of the garments is to give Aaron dignity and honour. Do you see that? The purpose of the garments is to give Aaron dignity and honour. Now, why would God want dignity and honour for Aaron? I mean, Aaron was sinful like every other human being. Um, in chapter 32, it was Aaron who actually uh, um, facilitated Israel's worshipping the golden calf. Um, a bit later on, uh, it was Aaron and Miriam who rebelled against Moses, um, meaning that Miriam became leprous. I mean, Aaron's a sinful person like any, anyone. So why is he to be given dignity and honour? Well, it's because of the role that he would take. It is because as Aaron enters into the most holy place that he is like Adam in the garden before the fall because he is in the presence of God. Now secondly, the clothes themselves are appropriate for a royal court. Uh, like the tabernacle uh, being a tent, there are various layers to the outfit that the priest was to wear. Um, the, first of all, let's start at the beginning. There's undergarments. And over the undergarments there is a tunic. Uh, over the tunic there is a, a garment called an ephod, which we'll speak about in a moment. And over the ephod is a breastpiece. There's also a turban and, uh, and sashes around his waist, a sash around his waist. And the fabric colours are very, very special. For example, take a look at verse 6. Uh, this is the ephod, which I'll come to in a moment. But in verse 6, uh, Moses is told to make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen, the work of a skilled craftsman. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, 
of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with purple, with blue, purple and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. So these are the these colours are not just ordinary colours in the Bible. These colours represent royalty. Uh, just as Adam in the garden was to rule over the creation, so here the priest is represented as, as like Adam, as like the Adam should have been, as a, uh, as a ruler. These are royal garments. Now thirdly, the ephod. The ephod is a shorter apron-like garment with, um, and it has fabric over, over the shoulders. So it goes over the head, it's got uh, shoulder fabric and it's a shorter garment so that you can see the longer garments that are underneath it. In verses 8 through to 15, Moses is to take two onyx stones and engrave on these stones the names of the twelve sons of their forefather Israel. That is the twelve tribes of Israel. And those stones are then to be mounted on gold filigree, which I understand is like, um, it's like a, a gold, gold thread, threaded together to form a... Um, a basis upon which that can be the stones can be mounted, and then uh, the two stones are to be fastened onto either shoulder, both shoulders, of the ephod. Now, what this means is that when Aaron enters the most holy place, he is not only the vice regal Adam figure; he is also a representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now fourthly, in verse 15, over the ephod is to be, is to be worn, worn an item which is called a breast, a breast piece for making decisions. Uh, it's a square breast piece, it's about 22 uh, centimetres wide, 22 centimetres high and it sits uh, on, uh, over his heart, on his chest, over his heart. Uh, let's, uh, and it's, it's made from the same kind of fabrics, the same kind of colours as the ephod itself. Uh, let's read about this breast piece in verse 15. He says, Fashion a breast piece for making decisions. The work of a skilled craftsman Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long, that's 22 centimetres, and a span wide and folded double. That's important. The, then mount four rows of precious stones on it. In the first row there shall be a ruby, a topaz and a beryl. In the second rows a tur turquoise, a sapphire and an emerald. In the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, a chrysolite, an onyx, and a jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the 
sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. So, mounted on the breastpiece are twelve beautiful and precious stones, representing, of course, the twelve tribes. Now, notice down in verse 29 that this breastpiece is referred to as being, it's called the breastpiece of decision. Do you see that? There's a reason for that. Because this breastpiece is folded double, like a pocket in verse 16, inside the breastpiece is to be kept two very important stones. We read about them in verse 29. Verse 29, uh, it says, whenever, uh, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also, put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece. So they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Now, interesting thing about this whole section of scripture is that at one point, in one sense, it goes into very intricate, fine detail about these things. And then... On the other hand, it'll say something like the Urim and the Thummim uh, and them being the means of making a decision without actually elaborating on that, and presumably because the Israelites knew uh, what it was about and we need to just do a bit more thinking about it. There, we, there were two stones, probably one black and the other one white, and it was through these Urim and Thummim stones that God would reveal his will to Israel. And so the high priest inside the most holy place in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God, that place where God said, I will meet with you, would come to God with a question, seeking guidance, and would insert his hand into the breastpiece and pull out just one stone the Urim or the Thummim, it would be a yes or a no from God in regards to Israel's actions to take in respect to a specific decision. God revealing his will to Israel through the high priest. So let's just recap. The high priest is an Adam-type figure who enters the, the earthly representation of heaven, the tabernacle, to represent the people to God as expressed by the 12 stones and the two on his shoulders and to receive God's word to the people through the Urim and the Thummim. And he alone is allowed to enter the most holy place. Uh, in verses 31 to 36, he actually uh, wears at the, on his garments, right at the very bottom near his feet, 
uh, he wears some bells. And so that, uh, <coughs> you know, if anyone should enter into the most holy place and there's no bells ringing, then that person dies. The penalty for entering into the ho most holy place <coughs> for anyone other than the high priest is death. Because sinful human beings can no sooner walk into the most holy place, into the presence of God, than Adam could just rock on back into the Garden of Eden. Because of human sin. Because we are separated from God. Because what is needed is reconciliation. And for reconciliation to take place, sin must first be paid for. And this is what we read about next. Because firstly, there is the sin of the priests themselves. They're sinful human beings. And so in chapter 29... Uh, as chapter 29, uh, chapter 29 then describes for us uh, an elaborate process of, of the sacrifice of rams and bulls which must be offered up to God first in order to consecrate the priests, to make them priests, and secondly, in terms of the burnt offerings, to pay for the sin of the priests and then in chapter 30 a special altar is to be made and notice where this special altar is to be placed would you turn with me to chapter 30 and have a look at verse 6 in verse 6 it says put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony before the atonement cover that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Where is this altar to be placed? Well, it is to be placed where God will meet with his people. And then notice its purpose in verse 10. Once a year Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. Here, on one day of the year, which came to be known as the Day of Atonement, today is known as Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice is to be made to atone for the sins of all the people so that they can be made right with God so that they can be reconciled to God their creator now there are several problems with all of this first of all um, the high priest Aaron is not vice regal uh, like Adam was before the fall secondly the tabernacle is not Eden or heaven it's a tent and thirdly the blood of bulls and rams can never pay for human sin they were never meant to be like that 
What these things are, the, the, uh, the high priest, the tabernacle, the sacrifice, what these things are is a foreshadowing. They, foresh they point us towards a future reality, a greater reality, which is found in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus was the one perfect Adam uh, who always exercised his human authority under the authority of God the Father. Um, Paul uh, in, in, in Romans says that just as sin entered the world through one man, uh, so too the one man Jesus has made many righteous. Uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul uh, says that Jesus is the second Adam. And Jesus, as the second Adam, is perfectly human. And therefore, he is our perfect representative. He is our perfect mediator. Jesus is also perfectly God, which means that Jesus is the tabernacle, that Jesus is God dwelling amongst us. And because of who he is, the one perfect true Adam, the perfect high priest, and perfectly God, because of who he is, by his death on the cross, he became the perfect sacrifice for sin. Not just for Israel's sin, but for yours and mine. The sins of all those, no matter who we are, who turn to Christ in trust. Now, I said that the story of the Bible is about reconciliation with God. It is about getting back to the Eden-type situation where there is no sin and there is a perfect relationship with God forever because sin has been dealt with. It has been dealt with by the great high priest. The Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a city. Now, will you come with me? I want us to check out the description of this city in Revelation chapter 21, which Andrew did read for us early, but we're going to read it again. In that Revelation 21, the very last book of the Bible, we're going to look at the last chapter of the Bible, actually. In Revelation chapter 21, have a look at verse 18, where it talks about this city, this future city. Page 879. And in verse 18, we're told that the wall of the city was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopase, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. This great street of the city was 
of pure gold like transparent glass. Does it kind of remind you of something? The precious stones, the 12 of them, almost actually, almost the same as the stones on the, on the priestly garments. But there is no temple in this city because guess what? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And then down in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is Eden. This is Eden restored for all humanity, for all those who put their trust in Christ. And this is what the tabernacle and the priesthood points us towards. And if you are someone who trusts in the perfect sacrifice of our great high priest Jesus, then it is also your future. But it's still in the future. For now, we live in the now but not yet stage of human history. We know that this is the future. We know that it is ours, but it is not yet ours. And for now, the Bible tells us that if you trust in Christ, then actually you are a priest. You are a priest. You see, we don't have special men in special robes who offer special sacrifices in special parts of special buildings. We don't have that anymore because that is what Jesus has already done. And his sacrifice on the cross was the full and sufficient sacrifice, never needing to be repeated. Jesus has fulfilled all of that. But what we do have is people whose sin has been dealt with. People who are reconciled to God. People who are clothed, not with special robes, but clothed with Christ. So that we can represent men to God as we pray for the salvation of people so that we can represent God to men as we share the gospel with those who do not know God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we are described as being a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to God so that 
we may declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. That's the light that's in the tabernacle. That's the light that will, will illuminate heaven. That is the light of the throne room of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow, as we think about the story of your reconciliation as it is threaded through scripture, um, it amazes us. And we are so thankful, Father God, that your word diagnoses the human condition, that we are outside of Eden, we are outside of relationship with you, needing to be reconciled. And we thank you that you have um, provided reconciliation through the sacrifice being made by and consisting of the great high priest, Jesus the Lamb. And we thank you, Father God, that through his blood shed on the cross, that uh, though uh, through the first Adam, death entered into the world, that through this true second Adam comes life for many. Father, we pray that we would be as priests, that we would be people who declare your praises, who share with people the great glories of Jesus, that many, many more would enter into your presence. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.